to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. This morning, we are smack dab in the middle of the story, and you can put your finger in 2 Chronicles 29. Now, It's a little bit goofy this morning because last week Rick preached on the boy king, Josiah, who came to the throne at eight years of age. Can't hardly imagine that. A nine-year-old grandson, can't imagine him king. But he'd like that, I think, a lot. But uh, at any rate, uh, Josiah actually comes after the character we're going to speak to this morning. So we're going backwards just a little bit. But here's the thought. The thought is that um, this gets its own kind of standalone uh, stature because it covers a topic that's really interesting and probably needs to be highlighted. Here's the idea. Worship is the tool of choice for God to be witnessed in the world. Essentially, what I'm saying is that God... Uh, truly would understand that when his people worship, he is displayed in the world. So we've often talked about uh, what it means to try and share Christ. And you heard Charlie speak to this idea of his neighbor. And it's a good picture of that. It's God's grace that comes. It's, It's unmerited favor. It's not a pay it forward deal. And it's not even this super generous deal. Like Charlie said, it's a dollar. But what it does do is convey the idea that God is alive. He is alive and he sees you. And when we worship, as we do with change for a dollar and all that goes on on a Sunday morning, this is the witness to the world. You're like, well, they're not peering in on this. Well, I I want you to see it from uh, this perspective, from Hezekiah's perspective. Now, to give you some of the context, he is um, comes to the throne in chapter twenty nine of Chronicles at twenty five years of age. So he's a little bit older than Josiah. Um, As it goes with the kings of Israel, after David and Solomon, the kingdom gets split. You have a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. We're talking about Judah this morning, and Judah, um, Jerusalem's in Judah. It's it's the seat of uh, where God would choose to put his presence. And he, in Hezekiah, comes to the throne after his father Ahaz. Ahaz is not so good a king. And this is how it kind of goes when we start talking about these stories. It just moves from bad king to good king to bad king, and maybe you get... You know, two of them in a row. and then, But the whole time God is saying, this is the story of my people. We've attempted to say, we're stepping into that. This morning I need you to use your imagination and step into the story yourself. To try and say, okay, can any of this match up? I'm not, I don't want to hyper-spiritualize it, but there are all kinds of parallels to what's going on. Ahaz uh, was, was not a... A good king. There was a lot of things about him that were wrong and that he led the nation into. I'm going to summarize it for you in chapter 28, if you just would read along with me, beginning at verse 1. 
Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the officials and presented them to the king of Assyria. But that did not help him. Now what he was trying to do was appease the king of Assyria. Assyria was going to conquer. They were going to come through and capture the people and uh, subsume this other kingdom, if you will. That's what they were attempting to do. And Ahaz is trying to make right here. He's trying to make friends and trying to thwart that effort. Verse 22. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. Yeah, nice call. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. The other events of his reign and all his ways from beginning to end are written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. So that's what Hezekiah steps into. It is truly political chaos. It is religious chaos. It is social chaos. It is emotional chaos chaos. There is nowhere to turn because his dad had created a mess and had chased after all these other gods and led the people of Israel away from Yahweh. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what your story is, but I can relate to this to some degree. Uh, My father struggled uh, with alcohol. Struggled meaning he was drunk and self-professed. Now he was dry for the latter part of his life. But it obviously had an effect on his family. And when I go backwards and kind of look, I know that my grandfather struggled with the same problem. And that um, he was a heavy drinker. And if I go back even further, when my grandfather was a small boy... His seven brothers and a sister and his mom and dad moved from Nebraska. He was born in a sod hut and he moved to Northern California. They didn't have much skill or trade. So what the family entered into, the boys entered into, was to just being migrant farm workers, fruit pickers. And in the northern part of the California Valley, they could follow the various crops. It started with cherries and moved all the way through to peaches at the end. Now, they, uh, that was their trade, but they were actually known for something else, really profound. The Hendrix boys were known for making moonshine, and, so they, were, and they were pretty good at it, or so I'm told. Um, and, you know, that's, I, I'm born into that. Uh, how decisions were made in my family did not rest upon what God had to say. That, that was never brought up. My mother was, you wouldn't know it by looking at me, but she was Mexican. And um, she was raised Roman Catholic. And there was always some effort on her part to try and pull God into the picture. But it was pretty much thwarted. There wasn't a whole lot that was there. And then God places me into this family. 
And so this is where I come from. And Hezekiah is in the same boat in that sense. Now his mother is Abijah. And she happens to be the daughter of the prophet Zechariah. So she comes from a religious family. The daughter of a prophet. And it seems as if she was friends with Isaiah. And Isaiah was the prophet of the times here during Hezekiah's reign. And it's, it would seem as if she was even part of Isaiah's council. He trusted her as a good friend. So there's a pretty good indication that this godly witness of Hezekiah's mother um, also gave Hezekiah access to Isaiah, who is the prophet prince. And he's got an incredible book in the Bible and uh, full of wisdom. So when he gets to the throne at 25, he's had some input coming from the other side of the family. And as he steps into this situation, he sees it as pure chaos. That's a complete disaster. But growing up and seeing all of that, it's fair to say that his mother's influence was stronger. And as he steps into it, he sees that um, there are a bunch of enemies surrounding Judah. Edomites to the east, Philistines from the west and the south, and the Assyrians from the north. And everybody would like to get their hands on this people and this land. And it would seem as, as if you or I were in this situation stepping towards this. The first thing that we would do is secure the borders. Get the military figured out and wall off these enemies. Because it's tenuous. It's vulnerable right now. But that's not what Hezekiah does. He understands because he's wise and been schooled. He understands that when relationship with God is right... And the witness of God is strong and accurate, that it comes with attendant blessings. A right relationship with God always begins with an awareness of sin. So look with me, if you will, to the first part of this chapter. Verse 2 says that Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign. So we're talking right out of the chute. There's no honeymoon period. We're starting now. The first month of the first year, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Probably Ahaz just nailed them shut. I don't know what he did. Crazy. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Listen to this very carefully. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. Literally, Ahaz moved the altar that was west-facing and was there with the ark to east-facing. He took the altar and he left the ark there. So when you came into the temple, you would turn your back on God to worship a false God. So it's both metaphorical and literal at this point. And this is what Hezekiah says. Verse 7, they also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. Shut the door, lights off, party's over. They did not burn incense 
or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. Complete chaos right now. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. The onslaught had started. And in Hezekiah's reign, it'll eventually reach fever pitch as both Samaria and the northern kingdom will fall. And it's the Assyrians marching towards Judah, if you will. He sees this, and what's the first thing for him? The first thing, a right relationship with God, a true witness to God, begins with confessing sin. It begins with at least an awareness of the sin that has gone on. So, the understanding here from the wise king Hezekiah is that all of the circumstances that he can see related to the enemies converging are the result of religious corruption. This isn't a weakness in military strategy. This is a non-acknowledgement of the God of the universe. And the circumstances look overwhelming. And he goes to the temple, and he tries to open the doors. And when he looks in, the temple is filled with rubbish. And idols and goofiness. It hasn't even been opened and shut the, shut the doors and the lamps are out. But nobody's even been in there. Rick spoke to that last week of what it would look like to come into a mago and have it be filled with idols and weird fire and incense and all kinds of goofiness in here. And how repulsed would you be for Hezekiah who grew up under a faithful mom? He understood this to be abhorrent, detestable. And so he starts by fixing the doors immediately. It starts with cleaning your own house. Now, I don't know what you face when you come walking in here this morning. But I'll guarantee you this. Circumstances always look bigger than God. That's how it works in my life. And if it was even something minor like an argument or some kind of uh, discrepancy between you and your loved ones. Just getting to church. If you could wave a wand and fix it, if you're anything like me, you'd fix everybody else. That's what you'd do. And Hezekiah says, no, it begins with us fixing ourselves. Looking inward. Being able to say, we have sinned. And we have to clean our house first. Can you imagine what it looked like to look inside the temple? And to see it filled with garbage. So he declares their sin. Here's what you don't hear from him. He's not blaming God. He's not a victim. He doesn't blame God. Say, God, why did you do this? Why did you give me this father? To be real honest, I've asked that question. I'm not as clean as Hezekiah. Because I've asked it deeply. And God said, I, because I love you. Like, that doesn't feel like love. Hezekiah is trusting God. He is having faith. And he understands the sin that is present. 
and he confesses. There's no incense, there's no offering, there's no worship, and there is no witness to the nations. So what does he say in verse 10? I now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him, and to burn incense. He's giving an inspirational talk to the Levites and the priests. He's not berating them. He's not compelling them. He truly is persuading them and saying, this God is worthy of our worship. Consecrate yourselves and we're going to clean up the temple. This is what needs to occur because we have no worship and therefore no witness and the nations don't know who our God is. And before we can solve anything about this impending doom of being captured, we must declare who our God is to ourselves. And so the priests and the Levites consecrate themselves. It would be ceremonially washing and bathing and coming to an understanding that they're going into the house of God, his very temple, to clean it. Levites aren't going to be able to go all the way in. Only the priests could. But they're going to have to dung this thing out. Do you know what takes them 16 days to, to haul out all the garbage? They throw it all in the Kidron Valley. Then, of course, Ahaz had taken out all the furnishings and he'd cut it all up so they had to rebuild that stuff and consecrate it and put it back into the temple everything that had been taken out had to be put back in so that it would be clean and pure and only clean and pure levites and priests would be able to do that so hezekiah says consecrate yourselves and then let's go clean up this table or this temple it's, it's not too different than having a piece of ground and a spring that feeds the water supply to your house. Maybe to a bunch of houses. The spring is dirty. The stream runs dirty. If you're going to clean up the stream, you go back to the spring and you clean it out. And you make it pure so that the water will flow pure, wholesome. So they do that. It's pretty crazy. And then they gather together once that's finished. Verse 20. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats. Bulls, rams, lambs, and goats. As goats as a sin offering. And the sin offering was for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. They slaughtered the bulls. The priests took the blood and splashed it against the altar. They slaughtered the rams, splashed their blood. They slaughtered the lambs and splashed their blood against the altar. You know how this works. When you're trying to clean sin, God says only blood will work. And it's a bloody mess. Seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and the blood splattered all over the altar. But now the goats. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king, and the assembly laid their hands on them. This is where we get the term scapegoat. This is exactly where it comes from. 
What's occurring when they lay their hands on the goats? Well, all the sin of all the people is being transferred to the goat. In order to be forgiven, that goat's going to have to die. That sin is being transferred. So they laid their hands on them. Then the priest slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel. Because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all of Israel. And he stations the priests and the Levites. Then look at verse 27. He gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also. The whole assembly began, accompanied by trumpets and instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the musicians played and the trumpet sounded. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshiped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. From the Psalter, from the book of Psalms, from God's worship book, they sang. This is a humble, passionate, dependent, and immediate worship. It's God's people recognizing the sacrifice that's been made and what exactly occurred. Atonement, forgiveness of sin. And spontaneously they break into song. I'm sure that's how you feel and how I feel on Sunday mornings, isn't it? When we walk in here, we just spontaneously break into song. Have you ever had one of those moments though? When for whatever reason you know you're in the presence of God? Oh, it could come at a weird time. It could come just staring at Mount Hood. That's happened to me. It's funny how worship and witness go together. I had to fly a bunch of places um, last couple of weeks. I flew Alaska Airlines. It's the one I probably always fly or the one I fly the most. Here's what's crazy. If you have kids, you go to the front of the line. If you're MVP, you go to the front of the line. If you're elite, you go to the front of the line. If you wear a Timbers jersey, you go to the front of the line. <laughs> really? How many times did I hear that? I don't even like soccer. That's ridiculous. But it's crazy when you're a witness, isn't it? When you worship. Are some of you worshipers of the timbers? I know you are. Don't give me that. I know you are. Yeah, there's benefits and a witness for sure. This whole thing of passionate, dependent, immediate, it's spontaneous. And so this congregation breaks out in song. And their response is to acknowledge God. Sometimes it happens with the birth of a child. Sometimes it happens when somebody you know receives the peace of God significantly. Sometimes you'll hear it in a song. Sometimes it's a story of transformation. And you tear up and your spirit connects with God's spirit. And there's no stopping your worship. Have you ever tried to stop it? Oh, you can. I do it all the time. Why? Sometimes it's embarrassment. 
I just feel uncomfortable. Like, what? I'm going to break into song right here? On the Max train? People listening? I'm not sure. We shouldn't. And the people here understood exactly what was going on. And where their eyes were focused on a God who was atoning for their sin. And they well up. Well, what else happens? It's kind of crazy. Listen to this. Then Hezekiah said, verse 31, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. All whose hearts were willing. This wasn't a have-to thing. It was just the hearts that were willing. Did it. This was an obligation. Here are the rules. Here's what you have to do. No, this was internal. It's that moment when you know it feels right to worship God. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 male lambs. All of them for burnt offerings. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the burnt offerings. The priests had to be consecrated, or excuse me, the Levites had to help them until the task was finished and until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests. There was more of them. There were burnt offerings in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied these. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all those people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. Don't let the last verse slide by. Because many times we can get our offering, we can get our praise on, if you will, and we can feel pretty good about ourselves. But here's the recognition that God had done this thing and he had done it quickly. He had changed the hearts of the people, which is what he does. That's what he's best at. Making something out of nothing. My stony heart that will not be transformed by my own will, he can do in a heartbeat. And Hezekiah recognizes it, and the people recognize it. And that's what happens with worship. It turns into a witness, because God transforms our heart. Well, this worship begets more worship. And in chapter 30, they reinstitute the festival of the Passover of unleavened bread. It's crazy. But they hadn't had this festival and hadn't rounded up the people for this festival in years. I don't know how to picture this. But I've had people that have come to me and said, I so much appreciate that the table is offered weekly at Imago. I don't know what I'd do if you denied it. It's so much a part of my worship and grace extended. Well, what happens if we shut this down for a year? There's no table for you folks. That's what it would feel like. There is no grace. There is no Passover celebration. So Hezekiah and the leaders say, we're going to throw it again. And we're going to send messengers out to all the land. In chapter 30, that's what he explains. He sends out the messengers. Come. Now, why would they send out messengers? Because they love their brothers and sisters. And their brothers and sisters are lost and captured or hiding out. And it's a bad situation. 
And they, they can't see God. They don't know God. Some haven't experienced the Passover at all. So they send out. And you can read about it. And when the messengers get out there, they get mocked and scorned and laughed at. Have you ever shared your faith with somebody who just went, that's ridiculous. And I'm not talking about a stranger. I'm talking about somebody you love. Yeah, you've been there. You know what that feels like. It makes you not want to share. It's embarrassing. It's hard. But worship has this way of thwarting all of that negativity. Because your heart's inflamed. And they sent the messengers. Most of the people scorned, but a few responded. And they came to Israel. Or came to Judah. And came to Jerusalem to worship. Let's just look at what occurs here. Verse 21, the Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and the priests praised the Lord every day with resounding instruments dedicated to the Lord. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors." Then the whole assembly agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. You know what that? That's the party's not stopping. We're going to keep going. This is crazy. And they do. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. And officials provided them. Uh, or a great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who assembled. All the foreigners. It was crazy. This is what it feels like when spontaneous worship happens. Worship begets worship. That begets witness. Their hearts were right. And they don't want to stop. Look at the beginnings of chapter 31. When all this had ended, the Israelites, who were there, went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. And they destroyed all of them. The Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. There had been other reforms and other kings that had come into reform and they had decreed that we take down the high places. But it's very different when it's a top-down kind of thing, isn't it? The pastors, if, if I, as a pastor of Imago Dei, say, here's what you need to do. Versus expressing who the God of the Bible is, and I believe that to be truthful every Sunday, And Rick, a tremendous witness to that, that allows your own heart to be inflamed. And for you to say, the idols need to go. And when it comes from the grassroots, you can't stop it. And all of them got torn down. Not by decree, but by transformed hearts who worshipped God. And understood exactly what was going on in the temple. Exactly what was being celebrated with the Passover. They detest their sin. They repent and they tear down idols. 
It's crazy, but if we keep reading, you can read through this, but there is another thing that literally transforms these people as they worship. Look at verse 9. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Transformation is manifested in generosity. And you can look at it throughout all of Scripture. But the people of God, if they're known for any one thing, they're known for this. Generosity. They're willing to give. This isn't about capital campaigns or some kind of uh, guilt trip or some kind of let's motivate people. Jonathan said in his little announcement, Margaret, kids, this isn't an obligation, it's a joy. And that's really what it is. When your heart is full up with worship, when you understand who it is that you worship. Well, these are a peculiar people and they produce this worship and witness that's just crazy to look at. And in the end, Assyria still marches. And Hezekiah's got to round up his leaders and they need to pray. And as the siege, as Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is going to lay siege to Jerusalem, he stops and prays and God answers. And the generals and the leaders of the armies of Assyria are wiped out, killed. In Kings you can read about it, it's 185,000. Judah doesn't have to lift a hand, God takes care of it. Here is another consequence of worship deep from the heart. You learn to trust God in all circumstances. That's what you learn. You and I can stand and look at the onslaught of our life and the circumstances that get thrown up and say, I believe in a good God. I believe in a God who knows me and knows my situation. And when God sees that, He's pleased. It's the only thing that pleases him. Your faith, my faith in him. You say, but Luke, man, I've had some consequences and I've prayed some prayers for a long time and they haven't been answered. Well, here's the question. It's not whether or not God's going to answer the prayer. It's whether or not you believe he's good. If he's not a good God, don't believe in him. And if there's no God at all, we're screwed. But what he declares is that he's a good God and he's for us. And we choose to put our faith in him and worship him. And he transforms our hearts and causes us to see things very differently. Well, what threatens this faithful, worshipful life? My own pride, my own idolatry, my selfishness and greed, my fear of man. How does, I, how does Hezekiah's life end? It doesn't end well. I wish, wish I could say it did. He gets, he gets tagged with being the greatest reformer in Judah's history, but it doesn't end well for him. He actually gets to the end of his life or getting close to it, and he gets sick with leprosy, goes before God, prays. 
God, don't take my life. God says, okay, I'll relent. Give you 15 years. Going to give you a little test, though. Hezekiah, just like me, gets right up to the test and then caves. Sounds like rain. He caves. How does he cave? Well, Assyria is still marching. However, they're kind of slowed down after God wipes out a bunch of them. And Babylon decides that they're going to take a swing. They know that Hezekiah has been healed and it's this great miracle. So they send an entourage to go witness it. The healing, explain the miracle and give some gifts to Hezekiah. It's all just kind of a setup. And right there, Hezekiah goes, I will trust in what I have done. And he brings in the whole entourage and he shows them all the wealth, all the armory, everything that Judah has. Was that a good thing? We can say no, but I don't think it was a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to show the world who you are just so as long as you acknowledge where it came from. And Hezekiah doesn't do that. He says, look at my treasury. Really? Your treasury. When it was indeed God's. And so what happens is uh, God heals Hezekiah. He's going to live for another 15 years. And then Isaiah, you can read about it in Isaiah 39, says here's what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come. And and they're going to pillage all of Judah, and your own sons are going to be packed off and they're going to be made eunuchs and they're going to serve the king of Babylon. Do you know what Hezekiah's response was to that? This is a word of the Lord and it's good. I've always wondered, why in the world could you say that when I think of my own sons and grandsons? And Isaiah says, because there will be peace in my time. Talk about selling the next generation down the road. It's unfortunate, but that's the story that we live into. So what are we to do with that? Well, what we're to do this morning is to come to this table and acknowledge that what Hezekiah couldn't do for the people could not stay true We are to come to this table to acknowledge what Israel couldn't do to stay true to God is accomplished, complete, in entirety, in our righteous king. And his name is Jesus. And he lived perfectly and lives perfectly. And he became the scapegoat. I'll take all the sin, I'll take all of the failings of Luke Hendricks, all of his sin, And I will forgive it once and for all. The sin that he committed, the sin that he commits now, the sin that he will commit in the future. I will take that and own that as my own and provide the righteous sacrifice to a holy God. What does that make me? It makes me how God sees Jesus. Approved. Blessed, righteous son of the most high God. Sons and daughters of the most high God 
are you. If you would put your faith in Christ, and that's what this table represents. And every week we come to the table to share that, to receive his grace. What Hezekiah couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, Jesus said, I did for you. And he is our good and righteous king. Come and feast here at this table with the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood. Feast and be graced with his righteousness. And worship. Let it fill your heart and take it with you and be his witness. Let's pray. God, thank you for this table, for your promise written in the blood of Christ our Savior. We pray that you would fill us with all the grace that you intended from this table and that we would be your worshipers to a world that needs to see the one true king. Thank you. We pray all this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.